chapter 2. So um, Titus is a, a letter, and it's written to a young man by the name of Titus. And he is a Gentile. Um, he is much like Timothy, if more of you are familiar with Timothy. And he was a disciple of Paul. Uh, Paul had left Timothy uh, in Ephesus. Um, but while he was there visiting Timothy in Ephesus, he actually was able to write to another man. So he wasn't just discipling one individual and traveling to different churches. Uh, if you read the book of Acts, you see Paul's kind of this like nonstop, going for it, untirable, and yet towards the end of the book of Acts, it seems like he kind of slows down and he spends more time in an area. I've always read the book of Acts and thought, you know, how much can you accomplish if you're there for a few days and you leave after setting people in place to lead the churches you planted? And yet it seems like, just like the rest of us, he was human. And so he was this young, go-getting kind of guy. He was all about getting as much done as possible in as few moments as he had. And, and yet later in life, what we find out is he actually slowed down and started to smell the roses, invest in individual people. And, and also ultimately, I think he understood that, hey, one day I'm going to die. And then who's going to be the leaders of these churches? And so he felt deeply called to invest in the next generation of believers. And I don't know if you've ever heard this said, but I've heard it said many times that the church is one generation away from extinction. If we don't invest in the next generation, the church disappears. Uh, if we are sheep, then we need to be healthy sheep. And in the or order to do that, we have to pour what Jesus has done in our lives, the things that he's shown us and taught us as we've dwelled in our relationship with him, we have to pour those things that we've learned into someone else so that they can go on and teach others. And that's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, the things that I've committed to you, the things that I've deposited into your spiritual account, into your repertoire, that's a big word for a Sunday morning, so that the things that I've deposited into you, I want you to be a good investor. And I want you to take what I've invested in you and you don't even have to come up with the funds, the capital. I poured it into you for me getting it from Jesus, and now I want you to take what you've received freely and pour it into somebody else. And in every other aspect of life, we see this, right? And every other, if you want your kids to learn how to play baseball, you take what someone taught you to play baseball, and you diligently pour that into them. You show them the discipline, you give them the skills, you watch their swing, you look for ways that they can improve, and you're always improving that game. The same is true at work. You know, if you're, if you're a carpenter or you're, you know, somebody that, that does taxes, you're, you're always keeping up on the latest trends of what the IRS has said. Okay, this is the new law. You need to, you know, do this thing. And, and you're always kind of keeping yourself sharp, if you will. Well, it's no different spiritually. We cannot expect to never show up to practice and then knock one out of the park on game day. It just doesn't happen that way. So as believers, we have to be intentional about how we follow Jesus. And really, it's just cultivating our relationship with him, getting to know what he is like and what he would want us to do in certain situations. Well, Paul was like that. He had spent devoted time to Jesus. And so just like Jesus went out and proclaimed the truth, and then he made disciples, and then he, you know, he led them to belief and faith, and then he gave, he gave them authority to go and do likewise. And so Paul is now passing his authority that he had received from God himself down to younger men who would be able to do the same things that he did. And so Titus is one of these examples. He's a young man. He's been left on the island of Crete. And I kind of commented last time 
if you wanted to pick a ministry in the United States, you'd probably be like, hey, God, call me to Hawaii, right? <laughs> Who wouldn't love to go to an island country? And, and I'll go make disciples and surf, you know? Even if I don't know how, I get to be on the beach. <laughs> Hashtag salt life, you know? Uh, but the idea is that he was left on the island of Crete, and though it probably had lots of beaches all the way around, uh, they had problems. And so Paul instructs Titus, he, he wasn't like Timothy, he wasn't known for being timid. He was actually a young man who was forthright, he was real, and he was kind of a man's man. And so Paul writes some very basic instructions to Titus, and in, in chapter 1, I'm going to give you a quick recap. Last week, um, this is from Paul to Titus in verse 5, he tells him, this is why I'm writing to you, this is why I left you in Crete. Verse 5, he says, for this reason I left you in Crete. I like this because as men, we don't want all the backstory. Just tell me what to do. Give me my to-do list. Wives, if you've ever got frustrated with your husbands, it's because they don't need all the backstory. Just tell them what to do. They're ready. Maybe that's not all husbands, but that's me. I don't want all the feelings. I don't want now, there's sometimes I need to listen. But just give me my to-do list and I'll go get it done. Because by the time we get done with the conversation, I could be, have it done already. And then I could be watching SportsCenter even though I don't even care about Sports Center, but some of you do, you know. So what, what he says is, for this reason I left you in Crete. He starts, he goes to verse 5, and he says, okay, let's get to the point. Let's get down to the brass tacks. That you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So he said, set in order the things that are lacking. Take this chaos that is the, the Cretan churches and, and bring some order in, some structure so that the church can grow. Because if there's no structure, I compared it last week to a garden, you can plant plants, but if you don't put up a trellis on some plants, not only do they not grow, but they just go everywhere, and they tangle one another, and they choke each other out, and then you don't get any fruit. So he's saying, put up a trellis, and, and guide these members to be able to be built on Christ. He says, I left you in Crete that you can set things in order. Set things in order that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as they commanded you. So Titus isn't just the leader of one church. There's several churches on the island. They didn't have cars. They weren't all commuting to a 30-minute away church. They were going to church where they lived. And so he was kind of the, the regional manager, if you will. He was kind of the one that could pass these orders down to these churches and they could set in place leadership. And then he gives examples and he gives what is uh, a qualification to be a leader in God's church. And we went through that last week in verse 6 through 9. And then verse 10 through 15, he says, uh, you need to know the qualifications for a, an elder, for a leader in your church, because guess what? There are people that are disqualified, and you do not want them leading your church. He says there, um, because there are disqualified people, rebuke them. If there are people in leadership that are not leading in a godly way, make a stop. He says, people will come to you and they will lie to you and tell you things that you want to hear. He says, but here's what you should know about them. And he kind of boils it down in verse 16. Look at this. They profess to know God, but if you watch their life, in their works, they deny God. And one of the qualifications that he listed, and I was reminded of this this morning, is in, uh, let's see here. Uh, the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. Verse 6, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And look at this, verse 7, here it is, I finally found it. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God 
look at this, not self-willed. Not ruled by his own will, but ruled by God. And this kind of reflects the character of Jesus. Jesus, when he prayed, even at his hour of greatest need, he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And so if that is the case of Jesus, and we are to be like Jesus, uh, a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, a, a leader over the body, should be someone who is not self-willed, but ruled by the will of God, given the desires of God and following through with his plans. And this seems like kind of a, a duh thing. Like, well, of course, they should be willing to do the will of God. But how many in the church today would you say that our leaders, if you watch their lives, you go, they're not doing the will of God, they're doing their own will. And what we're going to find out is that causes those who do not know God to blaspheme and mock God because they're like, if that's what God's all about, I want no part. They see the hypocrisy, they see through it. And so I'm kind of getting a little bit further into uh, chapter one than I wanted to, but they profess to know God, but they deny him with their actions. And look at this, verse 16 says this disqualifies them from good works. But what I want to point out is this isn't a new thing. People being self-willed, and, and people that are disqualified for leading in the church. And remember, if you will, that in chapter 1 I said, the only person that can qualify any man to be a leader in the church is Jesus himself. They have to be saved and repentant, and they have to be washed in the blood of God. You know, uh, election times come around, and we always, you know, it, when the presidential election comes up, there's going to be everybody throwing a big fit, and they're going to say, well, I always feel like I have to vote for the lesser of two evils. Guess what? No matter who is running, that will always be true. Because man is desperately wicked. His heart is bent on doing his own thing. Unless you're voting for Jesus, you're always going to be voting for the lesser of two evils. But we still, that doesn't mean we don't go vote. As Christians, we have the responsibility to go vote. We have to vote our conscience. We have to vote what, what biblically the person that's going to give the best situation so that we can live out our faith. But guess what? Even if the other guy or the other woman gets voted in, we still need to live out our faith. We're responsible for that. And so he says there, they profess to know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient to God, and disqualified for every good work. Anybody who is self-willed cannot do the will of God. So in chapter 2, what we're going to find out is that he says, but as for you, he says, they are disqualified because they profess to know God, but in their works they deny him. But you, he's saying, but you Christians, you are not to be so. You are not to be self-willed. And he's going to go into specifics because he knows that Titus is going to need some application. Okay, all right, so I'm not supposed to be self-willed, and I'm not supposed to profess to know God, but deny him by my works, but what does that look like? So in chapter 2, he kind of turns the corner. He says, uh, in, in verse 1, he says, As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Speak things that are proper for sound doctrine. Doctrines are not just things for the church generally. Sometimes we th hear the word doctrine and go, okay, that's something the church needs to do. But guess what? We are the church. The church is not a building assembled with blocks. It's a building made up of individual people, the body of Christ. And so if that's the case, uh, things that are proper for sound doctrine are for us 
as individual people. We have to take personal responsibility. He says um, sound doctrine, and if you'll remember with me, I've said before that sound doctrine is actually just a healthy diet. The Word of God is referred to as living water. The Word of God is referred to as the bread of life. And so if you think about that food pyramid I showed a couple weeks ago, there's certain things we're supposed to eat as far as a balanced diet. And depending on uh, you know, the day and age that we're in, we're finding out that some of the things that we used to say were proper for a, a, a good diet, now they're saying don't eat any of that. So carbohydrates used to be a big piece, but now we're going, well, maybe that's too much, you know, because all, the, the, you know, all the, the chemically induced sugars and all the stuff that we put into food to keep it from going bad in four minutes. You know, get a, I love whole grain wheat, don't get me wrong. But if I put it in the cabinet, as long as it's going to take me to eat a whole loaf, sometimes it go bad quickly. And so I got to buy a new loaf every three days and only get three slices out of it. You know, so we need preservatives, but at the same time, it's not always healthy. But he says, sometimes we need to recognize that those who are teaching us should teach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. And that's why we teach the whole scripture. We don't just pick out a verse and spend four days on it. But what we do is we teach it verse by verse chapter by chapter, because we believe that if there's anybody that came up with the proper food pyramid for us spiritually, it's God himself, and his word is confirmed, and it all agrees with one another, written over the course of thousands of years, and yet the whole thing agrees. Now, if you were to get us all together and talk about one instance, I don't know that we could all agree on it. For instance, uh, one of the things we talked about at camp was, how many of you guys like fruit on pizza? You know, if I polled all of you and said, pineapple on pizza or not pineapple on pizza, let's do it. How many of you guys like pineapple on pizza? Yeah, because you guys are my people. There should be more of you. How many of you guys don't like it? And some are undecided, right? I'm not sure. I don't, I've never tried it. But you put it with Canadian bacon or ham or regular bacon. I mean, of course, bacon's good with anything. Would you, now, if we change it up and add bacon to the pineapple, maybe... You pick around it, probably. Anyway, my point is, uh, the scriptures have been confirmed, and they have thousands of years, and all these writers that didn't even know each other. Some of them were alive at the same time, but not most of them. And yet, they all confirm, and they all point to Jesus. And so, um, that tells me, that's a miraculous thing, just to have the Bible we have. He says, teach sound doctrine, Titus. In verse 2, he goes on, and what we're going to find out is that in verse 2, he speaks to older men. Verse 2 through 5, he speaks to women. Verse 6 through 8, he speaks to young men. And verse 9 through 10, he speaks to servants or what he calls bond slaves. And so uh, whether you're anyone in here, you're either an older man, an older woman, and an older woman, or a young man. And, and some of you ladies are like, well, what about us? We're young ladies. Well, I mean, I think what it's saying here is that you need to learn from the older women. And so in verse 2, he, he continues, he says, he's, teach sound doctrine, and here's the sound doctrine, that older men be sober, that they be reverent, that they be temperate, that they be unshaken or sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Man, this, this cuts me. That patient word, there it is again. How many times have you heard somebody say, don't pray for patience, God will give it to you. Uh, God will give it to you because it's his will that you be patient. It's not something you need to pray about. Like, it's his will. It's a fruit of the Spirit, actually. 
If the Holy Spirit is in your life, Galatians chapter 6, you should be growing in the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So I always have to sing because I know you guys like it so much. But he says, he says uh, you're to be patient. You're, you're supposed to be sound and unshaken in faith, in love, and in patience. Why does he write this? Because men are not naturally this way. We are not naturally temperate. We are not naturally reverent. We are not naturally sober. Even if you don't have a substance abuse problem, we're not naturally sober because we let our emotions rule over us. I, I get angry. I'm Italian. I can't help it, you know. Believe it or not, Mingi is not Chinese, right? It's, it's Italian. I know, I know, I look Chinese, but, but he, says, he says we as men are to be sober. We're supposed to be not ruled by our emotions, not ruled by any other thing, but aware of what's going on, have clarity of thought. We're to be reverent and temperate, not, not this one minute, this the, set, the next, but to, be, but to be temperate. And to be sound in faith, love, and patience in Jesus. So the older women, he says, likewise. And I believe that that word likewise actually means that the things that are in that previous verse actually apply to the women too. He says, likewise, or in like manner, the ladies also are to be, and I'm going to read it again, uh, sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, love, and patience. Why? Because you're not, naturally. Uh, Ruled by emotions, maybe? Now, I'm guilty too, but ladies are more in tune with their emotions, and so many times they, they run rampant. And men, our, des- our job, believe it or not, is to sometimes kind of quench those a little bit, say, okay, but let's not let our emotions take control of us, but let's, let's kind of temper that. Now, men, sometimes our emotions are actually, they're indicators, they're, they're nerves, so that we can feel a little more. I'm finding out that, that my, my wife gets upset sometimes, and she goes, of course, she goes like to the nth degree, but when we mix my stoicism, where I'm like, I don't care, and she's like, oh my goodness, then when we take those two together, what we find out is that Genesis was right, that out of man came woman, we became two individual identities, but at the same time, when we become married, we become one, her nerves and her sensitivity we'll call it make us more sensitive and our stoicism make them a little more thick-skinned and so we need to temper one another and we need to embrace that don't get annoyed when your wife's emotional say lord what are you trying to show me through my wife actually having this sensitive antenna and then sometimes wise we need to go you know maybe my husband is actually here to kind of make me a little less ruled by my emotions because guess what emotions can lie They can rule over us instead of God. And so we need to be sensitive to that. Now, I can finally say that. I've been married seven years. If I'd have taught that seven years ago, some dude would be like, you don't even know what you're talking about. But guess what? I do now. Thank you, Lord. So um, anyway, he goes on. He says, the older women, likewise, after reading the previous stuff, that they may be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, you know, Proverbs says where, uh, where words are abounding, uh, sin is abounding. So uh, to those that speak a little bit more, we're more tempted to slander others. He says not to be slanderers, not given to much wine. The word there, given, means to be given over to the control of 
much wine, uh, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And so there's a sticky verse, right? Obedient to their own husbands. But the idea is not to be ruled over by them, but to be submissive. And, and the picture that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 5 is the bride of Christ is the church, and Jesus Christ is the head of the church. So he's, he's the covering for us. And if we are under submission of Jesus Christ as the head, what we find out is that he protects us. But when we get outside of what he's commanded us to do and instructed us to do, guess what? He lets us be taken over. He lets our sins kind of catch up with us. But his desire is that as wives that we would actually proclaim by our submission to our husbands. I'm saying our, like I'm a wife, but you get the point. That, that the ladies in their submission to their husbands and their chasteness and their sobriety and in their um, uh, discreetness and is they're being good and teaching the children good things. What they do is they, they actually they, they adorn themselves in a way that people will speak well of their husbands in the public. I cannot tell you how many times someone's coming up to me after being involved with something with my wife, and they say, man, your wife is just great. That, that honors me in the way that she carries herself in the community. It makes me feel like I'm proud of her, and I can tell her that. Husbands, tell your wives when you're proud of them for the way they carry themselves. Speak those things into their life. Let them know. Not because they need to hear it from you, but because it's a blessing. You're, you're speaking blessing over them. You're encouraging good behavior. Not because you're their parent, just because sometimes we need a high five. You know, all of us need a high five when we're doing the right thing. We're so tend we have this tendency to kind of only call out bad behavior and never to encourage good behavior, positive reinforcement. Maybe the school got it right, you know. Maybe, you know, we'd like to be able to spank those kids at school sometimes. But positive reinforcement really does go a long way. And so he goes on. He says uh, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste. The idea is pure. Um, to, to, to stay within the house, to not go out on their husbands, to be homemakers. That doesn't mean that your job can only be someone who makes the home, but to, to just invest in that place inside the home and to take care of things. It, it blesses the whole family. Uh, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that, look at this, the reason is that the word of God may not be blasphemed. If you carry yourself in a way that's opposite of this, uh, people will blaspheme God because you claim, you, you profess to know God with your words, and yet by your works, you deny him. And so uh, then he goes on, verse 6, likewise, and I would again apply verse uh, 2 there, uh, to the group he's getting ready to speak to, that they be men, uh, that they be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. He says, likewise, that the younger men exhort them, and the word for exhort is kind of like a coach in a huddle. Like, why weren't you blocking that guy? And kind of, you know, just saying, do your job out there. And, and, and ex exhortation is not like, okay, honey, I think next time, you need to make sure you flush the toilet after, you know, or whatever, or clean your room. But this is the idea of, go, of challenging them, giving them a charge and saying, 
do it. Be a man. Young men, be men. Stop being foolish. Grow up. And I think as men, we are called, and as, as moms, we're called to teach our, our boys to grow up. And, and that looks different in different contexts, but you are called to be men. In Jewish culture, you were 13, you were a man. And you were called to read your scriptures without mom telling you. You were called to be faithful, to be obedient to the Lord without people watching, to have character. So we're supposed to call them to be older. And he says, the young men to be sober-minded and in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In teaching, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Now he's writing to a young man, Titus, and he, look at this, he says, in doctrine, showing integrity. If Titus teaches all the right doctrines, but doesn't live them out, he has no integrity. No one cares what he says. He's going to be despised, actually, don't you think? That if he, if he proclaims one thing and does another, nobody's going to follow his teaching because he doesn't even believe it, and he's proving it by the way he lives. So to be in, full of integrity and reverence, to be incorruptible, not to be swayed by man's opinion or people who have money or whatever it might be, not to be swayed, but to be incorruptible. When you think about incorruptibility, it's the idea of the exterior of your car not rusting. It's got a good paint job. It's got good clear on it. You wax that thing. You make sure the water kind of beads off of it. You're working on the integrity and the incorruptibility of the body. Now, if the body has a little chink in its armor, the, the clear coat's been knocked off or somebody dinged it, what happens? Get a little salt in one of our Missouri winters, and all of a sudden, it, it starts to be corrupt. The idea is that it starts to rust. And it's because oxygen has gotten down to the metal and it's returning to what it started as, which was iron ore or aluminum or whatever it's actually made out of. Who knows? Most of it's made out of pot metal anymore. We can make a barbecue grill out of it. You know, but the idea is that uh, young men should be sound, have sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent or an enemy of that person may be ashamed having nothing evil to say about you. So our, our young men, are, are the way that we carry ourselves, and, and, and older women and men, we, we are supposed to have carrying ourselves in a way where if someone were to accuse us of something, that the charges wouldn't stick. No one would even believe it because our character is incorruptible and it's above reproach. He says, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their masters. Now recognize in the New Testament church when it started, slavery was something that was common. And it wasn't necessarily slaves from Africa. It was, you would have slaves that were actually owned by the people that were part of the church. And you, when people would come to church, you'd have some folks that were owned and some folks that owned people. But in the church, they were all one. So you could see where someone who was an indentured servant to someone else that went to church with them, they say, well, that's my Christian brother. So when I get back to work, I can treat him differently. Imagine if you had a coworker or, or someone who worked for you. They said, you know, I go to church with you so I can kind of get away with stuff. And Paul writes to Titus and he says, make sure, exhort, strongly encourage bondservants to be obedient to their masters, not to treat them any differently than they would a, a regular boss, if you will. Um, to be well-pleasing in all things, to not answer back. Hey, I need you to do this thing. Yeah, but... That's answering back. I have a four-year-old. She always answers back. 
got reasons for everything. So to answer back is really to say, um, I'll do it, but I have these concessions. And it's, you always got something to say. I always look at Lucy and go, obey first. Don't, don't question me, just go do it. Now, if they're asking you to do something that's questionable, causing you to do something that's sinful and disobeying God, obey God rather than men. But most of the time, they're not doing that. Most of the time, they're asking you to put in the effort to be a good employee. He says, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. What's pilfering? Some translations, it might say, uh, gaining filthy lucre, or not taking booty. You know, some people kind of laugh at that translation, but the idea is not, don't steal paper clips. It sounds funny. Don't, don't use the boss's copy machine. You know, whatever it might be. Stealing, stealing, right? So to be above reproach in even the smallest things, not to earn favor with God, but look at this. It says that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things, that you'll actually be clothed in the righteousness of God and prove what is that good and acceptable will of God and show what Jesus is like to the person you work for. How many of our bosses would be won over to Christ if we just worked as if we weren't working for them, but we were working for Jesus? Knowing that he's always looking, not looking over our shoulders and going, uh-oh, here comes the boss, close that Internet Explorer, whatever. You know, Maybe I shouldn't be doing that when he's not around. Because Jesus always sees it. You know, And so to have character. So, which section is for you? I have that for you there at the bottom of the screen. So I, here's my exhortation. Here's my encouragement, my challenge for you this week. Go through this passage and find out what verses are aimed at you or are for your admonition and take them to the Lord in your quiet time and read them before him and say, Lord, what ways do I need to work on? What are some ways that I need to become more like Christ? And then confess in the areas that he highlights and ask him to change you. And I promise you, he will. So, verse 11. He says, this is all the reason. Actually, if you hit the next slide, I want to highlight a few things. All of these reasons, all these ways that we're supposed to behave. Verse 5, he says, in order that, or so that, the word of God may not be blasphemed. The word blasphemed actually means vilified especially to speak impiously, to defame, to rail on, to revile, to be spoken evil of. Did you know that we, because we call ourselves Christians, have a responsibility to live like Christ? Otherwise, we can actually cause people that don't know Jesus to vilify or to speak evil of the Word of God. Many people are worried about what non-believers are saying about Jesus but many times they're saying those things about Jesus because of the way that we carry ourselves. Last night, uh, Daniel Messiah said that before he became a believer, he didn't want to become a Christian because none of the Christians that he met were actually like Jesus. He knew Christianity through watching, in Egypt, American television. And he watched American television, and even the examples of Christians in media were a complete twisting, and he saw them as foul. And even in his Muslim world, he's like, look at the stuff that they call good. And I think about this, and we would be easily name off a TV show and go, well, that's not Christ-like at all. These people that are in this TV show or that TV show, you know, we watch, uh, uh, we've watched, uh, what is the show? Uh, it's 
got Tom Selleck in it, Blue Bloods. You know, their example, if you saw them as Christian, really, they, in their words, they profess Christ, but in their deeds, they completely deny Him. And, and they have, in that, they go to church every week, but they don't know Jesus. Because if they did, they would act totally different. But then there's, that's obvious, right? But watch Andy Griffith. Watch the way that they handle themselves. They really believe in work salvation. It's all about being good. It's all about, you know, not falling asleep in church makes you good, you know, or whatever it might be. You watch, because if that's your idea of Christianity, it's actually not biblical at all. It's, it's a horrible standard. And so uh, he, he goes on and he says, notice this. Oh, sorry, verse 8. He says, your enemies may be ashamed having no reason to speak evil of you. If you will follow this simple passage, he says, uh, your, your enemies will be ashamed if they speak any evil about you. And then verse 10, so that you may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in all things. So if you want the word of God not to be blasphemed, change the way you're living. If you want your enemies to be ashamed when they speak evil of you, submit yourself to the will of God. Verse 10, uh, if you want uh, to, to show Christ to the world, uh, he says, to follow this, this passage. So then in verse 11, he continues on and we'll close the chapter out. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord, excuse me, of, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. So he says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. But what I want to point out is that sometimes we think of denying ungodliness in our lives as not killing people, right? Uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of something else that's obvious, you know, but not killing people is a good one. Uh, not stealing, right? There's lots of those things that we could list out and we go, well, that's obviously a sin, but guess what? God doesn't have bad sins and good sins. He doesn't have slightly less sins. What he has is sin. And Jesus died for sin. So if he has died for our sin, why would we continue in it? Now in the book of Corinthians, or the letter to the Corinthians, Paul calls out a guy that is sleeping with his stepmom. And they've taken up and they've shacked up together. And of course we read that and we go, well, obviously that's horrible. God doesn't look at that and see that worse than the way that we carry ourselves and treat other people. And, and it, what I want to finish on is in Matthew chapter 15. So if you will, I haven't made you turn a bunch this morning, but go to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1. Matthew 15. Matthew the tax collector, saved by grace, writes this in verse 1. He says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees, who were, 
who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. These were the upper-class religious folks. And they were saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So they're speaking to Jesus, and they see this as a major sin. They're breaking the law of the Old Testament that had these rules for how they were to cleanse themselves to be pure. And they had kind of made it a rule that, he's not saying, why are they washing their hands? This is obvious to us. We got hand sanitizer, we got soap in the bathroom. Like, we, we're all about being sanitized, right? We don't want to get dirty. But these men, and I've been to Jerusalem, if you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and you go use their facilities, in the restroom there are actually sinks that are real long like ours, and there's multiple places to wash your hands. But then in the sink, there's actually this canister, looks like a coffee can with two handles. And in that coffee can, you put it under there, you turn the water on, and then you don't wash your hands just by soap and water, and then you rinse off and you hit it with your elbow like we would. And it, of course, we've got our sensors now, right? So you get the sensor, and you don't ever have to touch anything. But most bathrooms, you still have to grab the door, so I don't get that, right? I like the little foot thing that they got at, uh, at Culver's. Where it's like, hey, because I'm kind of a germaphobe. But what happens is they actually, what they're saying is, why don't they wash their hands like we do? So these men probably were washing their hands, but they're, they're not following our tradition. Now that's tradition. We got traditions not just about like what you're going to do for your family gatherings and what you do on the holidays, but also every time you wash your hands. So they take this canister and they rinse their hand and they do it a certain amount of times and they grab it, and then it, on the last one, like, there's this extra, kind of like we do with the elbow, and I can't remember exactly what they do, because I wasn't watching them, I didn't want to creep them out, but there's, like, this whole ritual for how they wash their hands. So when they ask them this question, that's what they're asking. Why do they break the, tr transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? And he answered and said to them, <laughs> Jesus always answers a question with a question, he kind of turns the interrogation backwards, and he says, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your transgression? He, and he gives them an example. He says, For God commanded, look at this, honor your father and your mother. Now that's one of the top ten, right? Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. That's what the law says. If you dishonor your mother or father, it was death for you in the Old Testament. But you say, he's saying, you transgress. He says, here's what you've made that commandment to be. And I read somebody wrote yesterday, my buddy uh, Jared, he said, he was quoting Oswald Chambers, and he said, uh, never take a hard saying of Jesus and try to soften it. Sometimes we take what Jesus said and we kind of explain it away. He says, but you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. So what they had was they had these religious guys, and they would, as a, as a holy vow, they would say, everything in my life, everything I own is God's. And then their mom or dad would get a little older, have some health problems, need some help financially. And rather than honoring their mother or father, they'd say, well, sorry, I can't help you. Everything I own is dedicated to God, right? Okay, well, if it's dedicated to God, then it means you should be able to use it to be obedient to God and honor your mother and father. But what they said is, well, we have a religious reason to not help our mom and dad. 
Isn't that great? Doesn't that free you up from all the guilt? You know? And it's like, okay, so Jesus calls him out on it. In love, he says, you, you transgressed the commandment of God, a simple one, to honor your mother and father, but you got reasons for it. He says, uh, you're transgressing too. So what he says is, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect because you got a tradition. Don't want to break our tradition. It's like, well, if your tradition causes you to reject the simple commandment of God, I think you need to throw that out and obey God instead of man. He says, you are hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but look at this, their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so maybe this meets you where you're at this morning. I know that I have some struggles myself, but notice this, what he's teaching is that the way that we as Christians handle relationships with all other people actually reveals whether or not our hearts are right with God or not. And this is convicting to me because I am not good at treating people the way that God wants me to treat them. But it shows that I have an idol problem because instead of making God God, I've made me God. I've become self-willed. I've, it, it reveals my God, who I worship, is revealed through the way I handle relationships. And that's not easy always to, to swallow, but it's the truth. And, uh, you know, I don't know where you're at this morning, but I know that that's convicting to me. Don't feel condemned by that. Uh, we all have relationship issues. Uh, that's why relationships are so hard, especially the people we're related to, right? I don't know about you guys, but I got my own issues with my family. But the beauty is, is that God can redeem that. And what he does is he reveals his character through the way that we treat not only those who bless us, but also our enemies, those who have wronged us. And we have a responsibility to, like Jesus up on the cross, what was he praying for? He was praying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Who was he praying for? The people that were murdering him. Jesus forgave the people that were killing him. He forgave the man that shoved a spear in his side. He forgave the men that shoved thorns onto his head and made him bleed he forgave the men that whipped him with cords until you could see his intestines it's perspective right forgiveness and grace and don't get me wrong it takes grace to live out what he taught titus but i would encourage you this week how do you handle your relationships and do you know that it actually can reveal the character of god maybe you got a loved one that's not saved Start loving them and treating them and acting in front of them the way that Jesus is from this passage. And what you'll find is you're pretty likely to preach the gospel to them by the way you treat them. So, all right. Father, we thank you for this uh, good word. We thank you for this difficult word. Your word is not always easy, but it is good. And it's good, sound doctrine for healthy teaching. So, Lord, mature us in our faith. May the way that you have affected us, the way that you saved our souls, the way that you have come down to us and and like Jesus washed the apostles' feet, Lord, would you give us the ability to recognize how much we have been loved and Lord, help that to change the way that we love others. Jesus said that the 
the whole of the law was summed up in one command, that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbors like we love ourselves. And so, Father, teach us to treat others, to, to not look out for our own needs, as Colossians says, but to actually look out for the needs of others. So, Father, we love you. <laughs> I pray that you would give us the grace to, to see the areas that we need to work on and at the same time recognize that we cannot change ourselves. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as we try to swallow this and as we try to put this to practice and then give us feet to our faith, Lord. Let it not escape. Let us act it out. Let us uh, submit to you in these ways so that you can be glorified, so that your name can become famous. In Jesus' name, amen.